0: Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives Podcast. My name is Oliver Hartwich and today we are joined by our chair and senior fellow, Roger Partridge. Morning, Roger. Good morning, Oliver. We've invited you onto this discussion as a lawyer,
1: but I think we need to qualify that. Well, yes, I'm not a practicing lawyer anymore. I was a lawyer for a long time. And you're not practicing, that means you haven't got a certificate. And ironically,
0: of course, ever since you relinquished your certificate, you've been going up the ranks in the list of New Zealand's most influential lawyers. It's quite an irony in terms. Well, but <laughs> well, we're not seeking legal advice from you. We're seeking legal commentary. That's right. Because you have actually made a career choice many years ago that your true calling was not the law but public policy commentary. And here we have an issue that's right at the border of these two areas. It's the Mike Smith case. But before we get into the case, we probably have to explain a little bit why it is a bit hard to comment on this while staying within
1: the confines of the law. Yes. I think there are a few preliminary things that it's worth mentioning. I mean, the first, the Smith case concerns whether climate change harm is actionable before the courts, before the civil courts. And the case from the Supreme Court has been long awaited. The case doesn't concern whether man-made or human-made climate change is real. Nobody should doubt that, and nobody should doubt that it's a serious issue. The case concerns whether or not the common law, the judges, can play a role in addressing the problems of climate change. There are a couple of other observations worth making that have an effect on what we can say about the case. The first is that it was just a preliminary hearing. The defendants applied to strike out the claim saying it was untenable. Uh, strikeout proceedings exist to enable the courts to be free from unmeritorious claims. And so in hearing the case, the court wasn't deciding anything finally. It just had to decide whether the plaintiff's claim was tenable. It hasn't made a final decision on that. Just a sec, though. This is a preliminary hearing that already took two years. Well, it's actually four years since the proceedings were commenced in 2019. but, But two years since the Supreme Court actually took it on. That's right. The Supreme Court took it on in March 2022. They granted leave, and then they heard it early last year, and then they delivered their decision uh, just a week ago, more or less coinciding with the 20th anniversary of the Supreme Court. And there's a major conference taking place later this week evaluating 20 years of the Supreme Court's work. So probably and a so bit of a c- birthday gift to itself. Well, yes, or an opportunity to pause and reflect on the Supreme Court's performance. There's a second factor, though, that arises from the fact that this was just a preliminary hearing, not a final determination. And that is that the case is still before the courts. So we need to be temperate in commenting on the court's findings because the case is still live. So our discussion will have to be much more descriptive rather than critical. We can examine the ways in which the Supreme Court departed from the courts below without expressing concluded views on whether we think the court was right or wrong because the matter is still before the courts. But would it at least be safe for me to say that it is a bit strange that preliminary hearings can take two years? I think very strange, yes or that we should be waiting a year for a decision from the supreme court especially when
0: it's just about whether a case is accepted or not that's right yeah okay so we be very cautious about this the technical term here is contempt of court perhaps for the non lawyers we probably have to explain what this means and why this even exists as a well as a as a barrier to discussing court proceedings
1: Well, the gist of it is to ensure that parties to proceedings have a right to a fair trial is maintained and is free from outside interference. That's particularly acute where a matter is a criminal matter and a jury might be influenced by commentary. Not so acute when it's a judge alone hearing, but nevertheless, we need to be cautious.
0: Sure. See, that's a bit I understand about the criminal jury, because juries by definition are non-technical experts. They are not lawyers. It is probably easier to influence them and therefore you have probably a duty to protect them from influence. But when professional judges are concerned, these are people with decades of experience dealing with legal matters. I sometimes wonder, and I'm a background, a bit of a comparative lawyer. I mean, in in other jurisdictions, this doesn't even exist. Whether we are taking it too far protecting courts from just... Well, fair criticism, I would say.
1: Well, the courts do take a pretty robust approach and accept that criticism can be given in civil proceedings. But as a matter of deference, well, the case speaks for itself. I think we can we can get into some of the tricky aspects of the decision without having to express our own views on it. Well, then let's just preface
0: all our discussion here with greatest respect to the court. This is just how we see it. And we are just asking a few general questions. And of course, we have the utmost respect for our Supreme Court. Yes. Wonderful. (laughs) In which case, let's get to the case itself. So the case was brought by an indigenous activist by the name of Mike Smith. And as you say, it goes back four years ago and a couple of years ago, it actually reached the Supreme Court. But we should probably
1: just explain what this Mike Smith alleges to have happened So Mr Smith's an elder of Ngāpui and Ngāti Kāhu and a climate change spokesperson for the Iwi Chairs Forum. So he's a climate activist. And in 2019, he brought proceedings against seven of New Zealand's largest companies claiming an injunction to stop them from contributing materially to climate change. The seven included household names like New Zealand Steel, Fonterra, Genesis Energy and Z Energy. And he claims the seven have materially contributed to the climate crisis. And he says they've damaged and will continue to damage his Fenua and moana, including places of customary, cultural, historical, nutritional, and spiritual significance to him and his whanau. And he seeks declarations that the seven companies have caused harm and orders restraining them to cease their unlawful activity. There are three causes of action he relies on. They're all what lawyers call torts or civil wrongs, public nuisance, negligence, and a proposed new tort, meaning a civil wrong, causing harm to the plaintiff, a proposed new tort involving damage to the climate system. And he also claims that tikanga Maori should inform the reach and content of his causes of action. Shall we take this back maybe one step for
0: the benefit of listeners who are not lawyers and just explain a bit more what torts mean and how torts have developed and how they're actually discovered by the judiciary?
1: Yes, so torts are civil wrongs. Listeners might be most familiar with the tort of defamation, developed as a civil wrong, now statutory law in New Zealand, but developed as a tort, the tort of negligence, the tort of trespass to property. So many of these torts are also criminal acts, but if somebody trespasses on your property, you can sue them in the civil courts and seek damages. Torts have been developed by the judges and the scope of tort law, it forms part of the common law and it's judge-made law and the judges deduce the principles that make out the torts from the body of cases that have decided whether tortious claims exist. And typically the remedies
0: are damages and injunctions, so basically telling people to stop a certain behaviour. Well, to compensate, to reinstate or to, yes, or to stop. Mm-hmm. Okay, and as you mentioned, these are judge defined torts, so there is no statute, there is no legislation governing the right of torts, the law of torts. And so these torts can be discovered by the judiciary, like that new one that Mike Smith claimed exists but has
1: never been used before. Yes, the common law develops typically incrementally. The judges deduce the principles within the common law from the decided cases. And from time to time, they will work out that those principles mean that conduct that might not previously have been considered was also a civil wrong. Drawing on the principles and the values that are within the corpus of the common law from decided cases previously. So just for the non-lawyers to keep in mind, these
0: are non-statutory issues and they can be discovered and they can be developed by the judiciary. Now, shall we maybe just go through the three torts that Mr.
1: Smith alleges to have been committed? There's public nuisance. What does that even mean? Yeah. So public nuisance is a slightly arcane tort. It's generally been understood to mean an unlawful interference with a public right or simply perhaps not an unlawful interference when it comes to access to some specific public rights, like access to the highways or to waterways. And pollution in some cases, right? That's right. So if a river is fouled up through pollution, through a group of polluters upstream, Mm -hmm. that might give rise to the tort of public nuisance. Right. The next tort, negligence. Negligence means you are not behaving in a careful enough manner. That's right. A failure to take reasonable care that is reasonably foreseeable to cause harm to your neighbor, to people that you come into contact with. Right. So if you have a factory
0: on your property and the factory causes any kind of damage to the neighbouring property and it's happening because you have simply not constructed it properly, that would be a typical case of negligence.
1: But That could be a case of negligence or driving your vehicle carelessly on the roadway, causing harm to another, crashing into somebody. That would be the most frequent way in which negligence comes up in our daily lives. And I think,
0: maybe I'm wrong in my memory, but there was this famous
1: case of a snail in a bottle That's right, Donahue and Stevenson. So that was the negligently placed snail in a bottle of soda that caused harm to the person who drank it. Yeah, late 19th century Britain, I think. Of course, there's a whole field of torts in New Zealand that are largely negligence that largely we don't talk about because ACC covers the ambulance-chasing torts that we witness in America. And there are a
0: whole bunch of torts we don't talk about that much anymore because they've been taken over by statute. That's right. Mm. And then there is this third one that Mr. Smith alleges to have happened or been committed, and that's damage to the climate system. What, is, that's right. what does that even mean? I mean, it doesn't exist yet, but he says it might.
1: Well, yes, he alleges that we have a right to be free from other people materially harming the climate system. Mm. So now, took, you, can, you can understand that that's quite a different tort than somebody driving into you and harming your property carelessly in control of a motor vehicle. So that would be a tort that perhaps all of us are responsible for and all of us suffer from. Mm. Now, I took a bit
0: of tort law, actually, at university, T- did it in a civil law system, but then I did a, a bit of a legal comparison with the law of tort in my PhD thesis, and I mean, all of this is ancient history now, but what I do remember is that there needs to be a causal link between the action that took place and the alleged harm. And that link, from what I can remember from my studies, and you certainly from your practice, must not be too remote. That was always the benchmark. Now, when you look at the
1: Smith case, the link is not that clear, is it? No, it's not. And let's just put that in some context. New Zealand's total emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, comprise just an infinitesimal proportion of global emissions over the decades or centuries. The calculations that were referred to before the court were 0.17 of 1%. And just to put that in context, That's 17 parts in 10,000. So if New Zealand's emissions are an infinitesimal part of global emissions, one of the issues in the case is whether anything done by a single company or even seven of them can plausibly have caused Mr. Smith or anyone else a measurable harm. So so every ton of
0: global emissions, it's 1.7 kilograms for the whole of New Zealand. But we're not even talking about the whole of New
1: Zealand. We're talking about seven companies in New Zealand. That's right. Mm. That's right. Although among them are the biggest emitters in the country. And collectively, it was claimed in the proceedings, they account for about 30% of New Zealand's emissions. Although in some cases, they're selling products that other people, like Energy, they're selling products, petrol, that other people consume, causing the emissions. So effectively, we're talking
0: about 500 grams of each global ton of carbon.
1: That's right.
0: So to claim that that these extra 500 grams actually cause a specific damage should
1: be very hard. That's right. So that's been one of the issues at the centre of the proceedings at each level in the High Court, Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court. If the individual companies in these proceedings face potential liability, then why not every company in New Zealand? And why stop there? Why not anyone farming animals or driving cars or eating meat or even breathing out? Because all of those activities contribute to greenhouse gas emissions.
0: Hmm. Okay, so we haven't got a direct link potentially, between the actions and the damage that he claims to
1: have suffered. Well, that's an issue the court will have to decide. Mm-hmm. Okay, w- but What it had to decide in this case was whether there was a tenable or plausible link, or whether the claim was patently misconceived. That's what had to be decided at the strikeout hearing.
0: But the courts would also have to take into account what Mr. Smith actually wants to happen. And typically in tort cases, when you feel damaged, harmed by somebody else's action, you want these actions to stop immediately, but that's not what he's asked for.
1: That's right. If you're alleging that somebody's caused harm, then you normally ask for the harm to stop. Mr. Smith's primary remedy here, though, is not, he wants a declaration that they are causing harm. But then he's perhaps realising that an an injunction might cause quite a degree of inconvenience to the New Zealand economy and to New Zealanders. He seeks an order regulating the extent of the net emissions of the defendants such that they peak in 2025 and then taper off to zero by 2050. Mm. So it's much more like the work of Parliament in specifying a regulatory pathway towards and meeting its climate change obligations to get to net zero by 2050.
0: Okay, then let's talk a bit about the defendants in this case. And I think for the record, few of the defendants are members of the initiative, but actually we haven't really talked to them on this matter since the Supreme Court declared its ruling. But we should talk about how they would feel in these proceedings and what their perspective on this might be, because these are companies that, like all companies in New Zealand, would have to purchase emission certificates so that they can legally emit carbon dioxide and other climate gases. So from their perspective, I imagine it would be odd to be taken to court for something
1: that they previously thought was perfectly legal. Yes, although what they thought about it is perhaps not so relevant as just what the legal position is. But But legal certainty is a high good, legal certainly is a public good, and we might come to that later in this discussion. But the remedy that the plaintiff is seeking does look a lot like the regulations the government has specified in the Climate Change Act. Just um, the
0: Emissions Trading Scheme.
1: Yes. And this, the particular mechanism New Zealand has adopted to address And to mitigate the effects of climate change, greenhouse gas emissions is the emissions trading scheme. It doesn't give people a right to emit. So there's no legal right created under the Act to emit greenhouse gas emissions. I think the Act just assumes that you are entitled to do that. But that issue now was squarely before the court in these proceedings. But what it does require is most emitters at the upstream level, like these seven defendants, to purchase emissions units or credits to offset their emissions. And so that's certainly true of Genesis Energy running the Huntley Power Station. It must purchase what we colloquially call carbon credits or New Zealand units to offset its emissions. Actually, to be precise here, I don't think it is a matter of
0: offsetting. There is a total amount of emissions specified under the emissions trading scheme. And companies now can purchase parts of that, total cap, for their own emissions, but it doesn't mean that anything is offset anywhere. It's not as if the equivalent of New Zealand's emissions would be offset by planting forests somewhere. Is that right? Well, It's it's not technically
1: an offset. It's a permission. I think it's more technically an offset than a permission, but perhaps that's for another discussion. Okay. But in any case, I mean, once you
0: purchase something as a company so that you can actually continue in your business, and that includes carbon emissions, you would assume that you have just purchased the
1: right to emit them. You might assume that. The Supreme Court found that the Act doesn't create a legal right to emit. It just creates a requirement to purchase units to offset emissions. It's a bit of a strange construct, though, because why would
0: anyone purchase them if that didn't come with a right?
1: Well, because they're legally
0: required to. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, that's another interesting complication. But anyway, what we also have now under emissions trading in New Zealand is since June 2020, there is a cap. So the total amount of emissions is limited, and this is a sinking cap. So that means over time, the total emissions will decline in New Zealand. And therefore, probably also the seven companies, but certainly New Zealand as a whole will face sinking emissions, which is precisely what
1: Mike Smith wants to see. That's exactly right. And so a big part of the court proceedings focused on whether it made sense or the implications of there being dual regimes, whether there can be both a statutory regime and a common law or judge made regime using tort law, addressing the same issues. And the court not surprisingly found that the common law and the statutory law often sit side by side. So we have crimes as well as torts for things like trespass to property.
0: Sure, but in this case, of course, if there is a climate change tort and the emissions are reduced accordingly, that still wouldn't change the cap under the Emissions Trading Scheme, so we would end up with the same result.
1: That's absolutely right. So that if under these proceedings, one of the seven defendants was required to abate their emissions more quickly than they were required to under the Emissions Trading Scheme, That would free up credits that would be available for emitters to use elsewhere in the system and might mean that there was no net savings of greenhouse gas emissions as a result of the tort claim brought by Mr. Smith. Okay. Just to
0: abstract a little bit from the details of the case, there is a legal policy implication in all of this. Because once the court decides that the common law allows judges to interfere with climate policy and climate regulation. That means large function of Parliament is now effectively taken
1: away from Parliament and put into the hands of judges. I don't think that's so much the issue as is whether the climate change is the proper function of the courts. Are the courts well suited to addressing the climate change issue?
0: Isn't that fundamentally a matter of democracy to design environmental policies. And isn't that what voters actually elect parliaments for to deal with rather than hoping for the judiciary to come up with solutions?
1: Well, absolutely that it's a task for parliament. It's The question is whether this is also territory for the courts. And there are plenty of cases where both parliament and statute law made by parliament and the common law overlap. So I think the primary question is whether and this was squarely before the courts the primary question was whether the courts are suited to this task and whether the values that are within the common law and the legal precedent extend to the claims mr smith was asserting it's interesting to see how the court of appeal addressed it well let's just go through it yeah Shall i was we? going to ask you actually so we start in the high court We started in the High Court, and Justice Wiley struck out the public nuisance and negligence claims, holding that they were not reasonably arguable. Because of the lack of connection. A causal nexus, yes. He declined to strike out the novel cause of action proposing a new climate system damage tort, effectively leaving it for the higher courts to grapple with. The case then went to the Court of Appeal. Mm -hmm. It unanimously struck out. The entire claim, and it's worth stressing that, unanimous decision of the Court of Appeal, it concluded the causes of action and nuisance and negligence could not be made out. The lack of material connection between the alleged harm and each defendant's actions, in the court's view, was fatally missing. And as to the proposed climate change action toward it, the court held it was simply too speculative and uncertain to warrant further court time. And then went on to make an observation about what was the court's role in relation to climate change. And it said, and I'm just going to read from its judgment, it said, the magnitude of the crisis, which is climate change, simply cannot be appropriately or adequately addressed by common law court claims pursued through the courts. It's quintessentially a matter that calls for a sophisticated regulatory response at a national level supported by international coordination. So the view of the court up until the point that the case got to the Supreme Court was there are fatal flaws in the claim. And in any event, this is not an area in which the courts are well suited to intervene.
0: And basically what the Court of Appeal told us that this is a political matter and nothing that should be decided by a common law court. That's right. That's right. And so so far, so
1: orthodox. Correct. So far, so orthodox. So one might have thought with the Smith proceedings when they're launched, it's, it's very much a David versus Goliath battle, a cause celeb, inviting the courts to play a lead role and take a view on a matter and go where no court internationally has gone by using the civil remedies of tort law to intervene to address one of the world's big issues, climate change. But we found a very cautious High Court, an emphatic Court of Appeal saying the claim is not tenable. In any event, this is not a matter for the courts. And this would have been it. This would have been it. So, of course, there's another layer within our court system, the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court only hears cases it wants to hear so that Mr. Smith had to apply to having been dismissed in the Court of Appeal, Mr. Smith had to apply to the Supreme Court for leave to appeal. And the court could have decided that the Court of Appeal got it absolutely right and declined leave to appeal. It didn't do that. It said no, it granted Mr. Smith leave to appeal, and then we had the hearing last year and the judgment that came out last week. Mm -hmm. And that judgment? So the judgment unanimously reversed the Court of Appeals decision, reinstating all three of Mr. Smith's causes of action. And so you've got a complete reversal. You've got a Court of Appeal that is restrained and a Supreme Court that appears eager to hear the claim and feels no such restraint about the possibility of the law being expanded to accommodate climate change. Actually, just out of curiosity, You as an experienced lawyer, how common
0: is it that you have such a complete reversal between our two top courts?
1: I think the first thing you'd say is that it's undesirable. It makes... um, For legal certainty. For legal certainty. It's not unknown. But it's rare. But it's striking. Yeah. So when we get to the Supreme Court, and this is last week's decision handed down the day after Waitangi Day, the Supreme Court acknowledged that a defendant can only be liable if the harm allegedly suffered by the claimant, Mr. Smith in this case, was a reasonably foreseeable consequence of the defendant's conduct, and that to be liable at a defendant's actions must amount to a substantial and unreasonable interference with public rights. Again, that sounds orthodox. It does. It is orthodox. And the court was willing to acknowledge the absurdity of ordinary everyday activities being actionable because of their negligible impact on climate change. So the court held patently, this patent manifestly or patently inarguable, that ordinary domestic activities involving individuals traveling or warming their houses or cooking food will not amount to a substantial interference with public rights. But unlike the lower courts, the Supreme Court refused to apply that same logic to the emissions of the seven companies. Yet, while those seven companies may be large in New Zealand terms, they're just a rounding error when it comes to global emissions. Now, and especially because once you take a company like Z
0: Energy, they are not themselves responsible for the emissions. They are selling petrol and diesel to people and companies who will then emit it. But it's not Z Energy itself.
1: That's right. So you question, well, if... The, the actions of these seven can be grouped together and said to be actionable. Why not the actions of individuals exactly, being grouped together in the same way? So there's a logic issue which the, uh, a future court will have to grapple with. And still, so
0: the Supreme Court hints at the absurdity of the case and still
1: allows it to be handed back to the Court of Appeal. Well, it recognises the absurdity of making the individual actions of each of us actionable, but doesn't apply that logic to the individual actions of seven companies. Now, you might be forgiven, with the greatest respect to the court, for
0: finding this rather bizarre. On the one hand, saying there is not much of a direct link between cause and effect. And on the other hand, we are not striking out the claim and just hand it back to the Court of Appeal.
1: Yeah, it leaves an, an
0: open question. Hmm. Okay, so all of this is now back to the lower courts. It might from there at some stage resurface, of course, in the Supreme Court, probably in another two, four or six years. And so what will happen next?
1: Well, the case now goes back to the High Court for well, a trial. St- oh, they're starting back again at the High Court, not even at the Court of Appeal. No, the case goes back to the high court for a trial and we will have months of court time and millions, probably tens of millions of dollars of legal fees and experts fees consumed in what will be a cause slab trial, a massive symbolic trial, which will be watched, I guess, in jurisdictions around the world. With the judiciary being in the role that many would have thought was more suited to Parliament regulating emissions rather than the matter being um, uh, adopted by the courts. Right. We cannot reasonably predict
0: how this court trial will end, but I think there's one thing quite likely. It will go to appeal.
1: It will go to appeal and then Probably on appeal to the Supreme Court. It would be very hard for the Supreme Court to turn down leave on a final hearing when it's granted leave on a preliminary hearing. So I think we can predict years of litigation consumed in novel litigation with novel legal issues. So the first journey from
0: the High Court to the Supreme Court took us four years, and the second journey will probably take us an equal amount
1: of time. I think it'll take longer. Longer? Um, It'll take longer, yes, because, well, for a start, our clogged-up court system, the parties will need to find a big chunk of court time.
0: Mm. I would have thought it's probably shorter because
1: I thought COVID probably
0: delayed everything in the last few years. But you think it's going to take longer. So we'll probably still be talking about this case maybe eight, nine, ten years after it started.
1: Or even longer.
0: Even longer. Okay, and at the end of it, we might have some common law recognition of climate rights. But in any case, any government trying to do climate policy in the meantime will probably feel maybe not concerned, but not even constrained, but they would probably look at this with unease because so far Parliament made climate policy executed by the government and now they would always have to watch with one eye what's happening in the courts because that might interfere at some stage with government's climate policies.
1: Yes, the two could overlap. Parliament, of course, sits on top of the court system, so Parliament has the final say. I think it's unlikely what's happening in the courts will interfere with the government of the day's climate policy. Whether it will do any good for the climate is another thing.
0: Okay, then let's just speculate a little bit what the political response to all of this might be. So if I were Minister for Climate Change or Prime Minister or Minister of Finance, I would look at this and think, well, actually... No, climate policy is a matter for us as the government. We have been elected for matters like this, and we would like to be in charge of that. And we wouldn't actually want to see this go to the court. We are unhappy with what's going on. We are also unhappy with the prospect of having this drag out for the next five, six years. So basically over our next two or three parliamentary terms even. So we might actually want to bring this to a halt and stop this. Parliament, as you mentioned, stands above the court system. It could probably be a simple act of parliament, one or two lines, saying that when it comes to climate policy, common law is not applicable. Parliament could do that. And that would end the case straight away. Yeah. And it would, I would say, introduce, other observers might say reintroduce legal certainty.
1: Yes, Parliament could do that. Parliament, probably not the top of Parliament's list of concerns it has with an expansionist Supreme Court, but Parliament could certainly do that. Should Parliament do that? I think
0: at this stage, no. So you think it is worth actually spending the millions of legal fees and having all of this time wasted in our court system on a case that eventually might be superfluous if Parliament then, after the fact, decides to rule out the common law?
1: I suspect that Parliament has more pressing issues and even more pressing concerns with recent decisions of the Supreme Court than this
0: one. Mm. So Parliament should actually have a broader discussion, and broader look at the Supreme Court and how it's developed over the last 20 years.
1: I think so. And maybe that can be a discussion in a future podcast. But the 20th anniversary of the Supreme Court is a good time for an assessment of how the Court has performed. And it is clear from judgments over the last few years that the court is systematically introducing a new method of judicial decision-making involving, amongst other things, weaving tikanga Māori into the common law and evolving the common law in response to the court's assessment of changing societal values. And there are quite a few problems with that approach. It's no exaggeration to say it's revolutionary. Well, as you say, that would be a matter for
0: different podcast. But just as an aside, there seems to be an international development. You look at the highest courts, many jurisdictions around the world, and you will find similar developments.
1: That's right. Perhaps it's particularly acute at the moment here or pertinent because of the 20th anniversary. We can look back to the Supreme Court Act 2003. Nowhere in that act does it refer to developing the court's role as developing the common law. It refers to the rule of law and to parliamentary sovereignty. And those are both concepts that connote certainty and predictability and not the common law being developed by the courts swaying to the views or to the tune of individual judges or individual courts. And so I think that's the broader issue in which the Smith case needs to be assessed. So I've
0: taken notes here, and I noted that we need to have at least two more podcast conversations on this. The first one actually on the issue of contempt of court, and the second one on the future of the Supreme Court. Right, well, I'll look forward to them. Me too. But for now, thank you very much, Roger, and we'll watch the next few years of this interesting case with great interest. Thank you. Thank you.